This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The windows of the Italian hall glowed invitingly in the gloomy winter afternoon. The faint sounds of joyful voices filtered through its seven arched windows. Christmas had come to the town of Red Jacket, Michigan, in the Calumet Township. Inside, dozens of families gathered, around 700 people in total. The noise was immense, a mixture of Finnish, English, Italian, and other languages. Most of the people assembled had come to America from their home countries to find work in the Michigan copper mines. Work was plentiful, but fraught with peril. They turned to their union to protect them on the job. And as of December 24, 1913, the union had been on strike for five months. They wanted to negotiate with their employers for better pay, shorter hours, and safer working conditions. Fighting for all these things had taken a severe financial toll on the miners and their families. Some relief efforts from charity organizations had supported them, but it had never felt like enough. Tonight's celebration was primarily for the children, but it also served as a reprieve for the adults, a reprieve from the protests, bitter standoffs, and bursts of violence that had become the norm since the strike began. Standing on stage was Anna Big Annie Clements, who organized the festivities. She had been instrumental in raising money for presents and candy. She was delighted that the striking miners' children would be able to have a small piece of joy this Christmas even as their parents were fighting tooth and nail to survive. This period of joy would be shorter than even the most jaded miners could have imagined. Just after 4.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, an uninvited guest entered the Italian hall. What happened next would be the single largest mass murder in Michigan history. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there's always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our ninth episode on The Dark Side of Holidays, the holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, 
but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we'll be telling a very particular Christmas story. It starts in July of 1913 and reaches its horrific climax on Christmas Eve of that same year. The Copper Country Strike of 1913 and 1914 was a dramatic labor conflict between Michigan mine owners and their employees. But all the legal battles would be eclipsed by a single tragedy, the Italian Hall disaster. Occurring on December 24th, the Italian Hall disaster was a sudden and unpredictable mass panic that ended with more than 70 people dead. It shook the community to its very core and provides a historical example of how a heartwarming holiday celebration is always a hair's breadth away from turning into a tragedy. The working class, after all, often has a significant less jolly holiday than those who pay them. For many, Christmas brings a sense of joy and comfort as the winter months close in. It's a chance to either celebrate in the comfort of your own home or go out and share your joy with others in a tinsel-covered bar or around an enormous Christmas tree in a city center. This sense of community is crucial to the modern version of Christmas, along with the idea of generosity and kindness keeping people together. On Christmas, a good person gives generously to others and spreads joy wherever they can. These tenets may sound wholesome and heartwarming, but when viewed from a certain lens, the happiest holiday can be one of the saddest. The whole modern concept of Christmas is tied to opulence, Feasting, buying presents for friends and family, and spending the day reveling with your loved ones. All things that the less fortunate are often unable to participate in. As we discussed in our episode on holiday psychology, the financial burden of the holiday season places an enormous psychological strain on families. Mothers and fathers want to be seen as a good parent by their children, despite not being able to afford pricey presents or even a Christmas tree to put them under. Food drives and charitable donations are popular during the season, but there's an implicit message along with these gifts. You are the receiver, not the giver. It reinforces the feeling that a person with less financial freedom is somehow lesser than the person supporting them. Therefore, even for people of limited means, the incentive to find a way to provide is stronger than any other day of the year, all while their employers are unwilling to lighten their workload. Even getting days off for a holiday is a privilege working-class people had to fight tooth and nail for, one they wouldn't enjoy if not for unions and labor rights groups. 
organized action among workers is the only bargaining chip many workers have to ensure they'll be home for Christmas. In his iconic novel, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens painted the face of evil as a rich man who had no sympathy for his employees at Christmas, placing the bottom line over a person's right to spend a holiday with their family. A man like Ebenezer Scrooge wouldn't be out of place in Copper Country during the winter of 1913. In fact, the Michigan Copper Country strike of 1913 is the perfect example of how the Christmas spirit is often severely lacking in those who profit off of cheap and disposable labor. Copper Country is a moderately sized section of northern Michigan, encompassing the Keweenaw Peninsula jutting out into Lake Superior. As of 2019, tourism and logging are the main industries, but at the turn of the 20th century, its primary industry was the one that gave the county its name, copper mining. The area was extraordinarily rich in copper. While most mines produced copper in a diluted form, such as copper sulfide or copper oxide, the mines in this area produced what is known as native copper, or copper in its pure metal form. Though Native Americans had mined in copper country since around 3000 BCE, by the early 1900s, a number of American businesses moved in to turn a profit. The richest of these was the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company, whose general manager in 1901 was a man named James McNaughton. He was appointed by the Boston-based owners because they thought the current management was coddling their workers too much. A hard-nosed taskmaster like McNaughton would set things straight. Like many of their competitors, Calumet and Hecla relied on cheap immigrant labor to keep the copper mines running. The area around the mines, known as the Calumet Township, had a population of over 25,000 by the end of the 1800s. Many of them were employed by Calumet and Hecla. The largest immigrant group in Calumet was Finnish, but the area was also home to Polish, Hungarian, Austrian, Croatian, Cornish, and Italian communities. Calumet and Hecla, or C&H, was more than just their employer. It was also their landlord, as much of the housing in Calumet was built and owned by the mining company. So, in effect, miners would work 10 to 12 hours a day in the mines, then come back home to their families on C&H property. They were never far from their bosses. A number of sources over the years have described CNH's relationship with its employees as benevolent feudalism, as they were the essential overlords of the whole region. The underlying truth of the matter was that they were only benevolent if you stayed in the company's good graces. The leases to company-owned properties often had clauses stating that if the tenant ever left CNH, the lease would be immediately nullified. Therefore, miners would only be able to live in affordable housing if they remained miners. And the job itself was far from ideal. In fact, it was horribly dangerous. In the early 1900s, a number of workers sued C&H for unsafe work conditions, damages, and deaths that occurred in their mines. 
This is unsurprising because at the time, copper mining was the most fatal form of mining in the continental United States. Every year, five men out of each thousand would die, and twice as many would experience severe injuries. Historical sources claim the death toll was 61 a year, over one death per week. The average wage for a worker in a CNH mine was $3 a day, the equivalent of almost $80 in 2019. This was seen as a good livable wage for many families at the time, but it wasn't consistent. Supervisors, or trammer bosses, would inspect each haul of rock and pay the miners based on the tonnage of rock mined. Essentially, the livelihoods of the miners would depend on purely arbitrary guesswork from their superiors. Any man who complained about improper pay was promptly fired. Without a union, the workers had to rely on the small handful of lawyers who would stand up against the so-called copper barons. But in 1909, Copper Country's mine workers gained a crucial new ally, the Western Federation of Miners Labor Union. Until this point, the workers had kept to their relatives and ethnic groups. Under a union, they would, in a sense, become a large extended family. At first, getting past the language barriers was difficult. But within a few years, the WFM had a decent foothold in the area. By 1913, they claimed to have around 9,000 members in the county. But in the CNH mines, union membership only accounted for one-half to one-third of the workers. It was a significant enough chunk to gain the attention of general manager James McNaughton, but not enough for him to believe the union had any real power. On July 14, 1913, a letter was delivered to all of the mine owners in Copper Country. In it, the WFM outlined a vague list of demands, including the shortening of the working day, raising wages, and making some changes in the working conditions. The letter was aggressive, but far from undiplomatic. It concluded by asking that the mine owners meet with union representatives to discuss the conditions. If management didn't meet with them, the miners would have no choice but to strike. But McNaughton didn't agree to the meeting. In fact, he didn't even reply to the letter. On July 22nd, the workers had waited long enough. They put out a call for a general strike. While there had been strikes in Copper Country before, they had all been isolated to a single mine at a time, and the participants would simply relocate if the strike was unsuccessful. This time, the strike would cover mines across Houghton County and would be the biggest stab at labor rights ever attempted in the area. And it would wind up costing dozens of lives. Coming up, the strike begins and the mine owners take drastic actions to restore the status quo. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Now back to the story. In 1913, Northern Michigan was primed for a revolution. Just four years earlier, members of the Western Federation of Miners had arrived in Copper Country to discover that working conditions in the area were far from ideal. After four years of organizing, they were finally ready to issue demands to James McNaughton, the general manager of Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. These demands were vague, but they involved adjusting the payment, hours, and general working conditions of the mines. The push for better conditions was supported by the families of miners who objected to the 10 to 12 hour workdays that prevented miners from spending time with their wives and children for weeks at a time. The WFM memo issued on July 14, 1913 received no response, presumably as McNaughton waited for instruction from his superiors in Boston. Four days later, a telegram arrived that simply stated, approve not acknowledging union letter. And that's exactly what McNaughton did. The strike was not absolute, but it was significant. In late July, only a couple of days after the strike was officially called, a telegram arrived at the office of Michigan Governor Ferris. It was from Sheriff James Cruz of Houghton County. The telegram read, I am unable to handle the situation as the area to be covered is 28 miles long. The strike is on in 20 mines with 15,000 idle men. Whether this was an accurate assessment or merely an estimate is difficult to verify. But Governor Ferris was slow to respond with the promised assistance and the County Board of Supervisors voted to hire an outside contractor. They hired the Waddell Mayen Company, a New York-based security agency that prided itself in breaking strikes. They were, for all intents and purposes, hired thugs. Rather than meeting to negotiate with the miners, the company preferred to settle things using intimidation and violence. Shortly after, approximately 2,500 members of the National Guard arrived and pitched tents anywhere they could find room in Houghton County. Their ranks were bolstered by 500 strike bearers from various agencies, including Waddell Mahan. Written accounts of the strike's early days described looting and armed men among the strikers. However, most of these came from the English-language papers in the area, which were largely biased against the immigrant communities. Much of the activity was simply peaceful demonstrations on the streets of Calumet. One of the strike's most notable figures was a physically imposing young woman who carried the American flag in front of her fellows. Her name was Anna Clements, known as Big Annie due to her height. She was not a minor, very few women were employed by the mines at the time, but she stood up on behalf of the families whose livelihoods were being threatened. Though Calumet and Hecla's mines had a significant number of non-union workers who didn't join in the strike, many of them left the area to avoid the conflict. And without any operators for their pumps, the lower levels of mines began filling with water. Rats poured onto the streets from the flooding mine shafts. Despite the dire state of the abandoned mines, McNaughton remained resolute. He claimed that he'd allow the mines to completely fill with water 
before negotiating with the Western Federation of Miners. After the panic surrounding the first couple of weeks of the strike died down, Governor Ferris decided that the National Guard was no longer needed. In early August, he ordered half of the men home by the 15th. Most of them quite willingly departed by the 11th. But on August 14, 1913, another incident would occur that sent the strike on a path towards violence. On that day, two Croatian mine workers, Ivan Kalan and Ivan Stimitz, walked to a nearby town to see if the WFM had made any progress in their negotiations. When they learned the Union was no closer to a compromise, they began their walk back to Sieberville, a CNH-owned cluster of boarding houses. On their way home, they took a shortcut, one that took them through the mine's property. They heard a loud voice call out behind them. They turned to see a trammer boss named Humphrey Quick shouting at them, brandishing a billy club. He told them they weren't allowed to cross this part of the land. But the two Croatians spoke limited English, so they simply ignored him and continued on their way. Quick went to report the incident, and his supervisor told him to bring the two strikers to him so he could explain it to them in their own language. On the surface, it seemed to be a reasonable request. But things soon got out of hand. Quick headed back to Sieberville to find Kalan and Stimitz, joined by a handful of other men. Two were deputized, and four were from the union-busting agency, Wadel Mahan. All of them were armed. Ivan Kalan was chewing tobacco and lawn bowling outside his boarding house. The men vaulted over the fence and went straight for him. Guns drawn, the men tried to grab a hold of Kalan. One of them struck him across the head with a billy club. Chaos broke out among the other men on the lawn. In confusion, Kalan struggled free and fled inside his house. Someone threw a stick toward the gunmen. It struck one of them in the head, a man named Joshua Cooper. Cooper panicked, whirled, and shot the first person he saw. The bullet struck the landlord's brother in the chest, fatally. After hearing the gunshot, another man opened fire on the house. Cooper followed Kalan inside, firing wildly as he did so. The other man the deputies were after, Ivan Stimitz, was in the dining room at the start of the shooting. He tried to duck out of the way, but was hit in the side. He stumbled out into the woods and hid there, bleeding, waiting for the gunmen to come and finish the job. By the time the shooters had run out of ammunition, two innocent bystanders lay dead. The men hired by the mine owners to keep laborers down had become cold-blooded murderers. News reports about the incident were far from accurate. The Atlanta Constitution printed the headline, Stryker is killed resisting arrest. This headline was patently false. First of all, Stimitz and Kalan weren't under arrest. And secondly, they weren't even the two people who had been killed. The prosecutor for Houghton County, Anthony Lucas, went to examine the bullet-riddled boarding house the following day. Upon inspection, he told Sheriff Cruz to arrest the men responsible for the murder. Cruz arrested Kalan and Stimitz instead. It was clear that the anti-strike establishment 
wanted to see these two minors take the fall for the incident. But prosecutor Anthony Lucas was no fool. By the time the two men landed in court, he had determined how to ensure that justice was done. People versus Kalan seemed like a standard case from the get-go. Firstly, Lucas had to determine if the men who opened fire on the boarding house had probable cause to arrest Stemitz and Kalan. So the first men interviewed were the deputies themselves. Lucas interviewed Thomas Raleigh, Humphrey Quick, Joshua Cooper, and a number of other men involved in the shooting. In their eagerness to paint the immigrant boarders as the aggressors, the men's testimonies differed wildly. Most claimed it was the strikers who shot first. This was provably false, as not a single gun was found on the premises. After the preliminary examination, Lucas announced that instead of prosecuting Kalan and Stemitz, he would be prosecuting the six armed men who stormed onto their property. Instead of a show trial, the miners saw a man in power willing to fight for justice. The coverage of the ongoing trial was as harshly divided as the strike itself. During the initial testimony, the shooters had essentially indicted themselves, believing they were helping to put Stemitz and Kalan behind bars. But while the prosecutor was on the side of the miners, press coverage was less favorable to their cause and less accurate to the facts of the case. Many of the English language papers, such as the Daily Mining Gazette, ran articles implying that the strikers were the ones who should be arraigned for the murder. At their first opportunity, four of the six shooters skipped town to avoid their convictions. Lucas suspected that Sheriff Cruz helped them escape in the hope that their charges would be dropped so it wouldn't reflect poorly on mine management. But Lucas refused to drop the charges, and the trial continued in their absence. CNH manager James McNaughton didn't issue any public statements during the trial, but publications he was connected to rose to the defense of the shooters, holding fast to the resisting arrest story. McNaughton's correspondence throughout the strike is meticulously documented with two notable gaps. The first is during the trial, where all the letters he wrote to his allies appear to have been lost to history. Some historians theorize that this is to cover up any evidence that McNaughton approved of the strikebreakers' methods. As the trial dragged on, tensions continued to boil over between the strikers and the mines. Waddell men would often beat and arrest strikers for no reason. These actions, along with the Seberville affair, led the WFM to take legal action against Sheriff Cruz for hiring the Waddell Mahan Company in the first place. The judge was baffled by how loosely the term deputy was interpreted in Houghton County. He severely reprimanded the sheriff, but didn't issue any penalties to the Waddell Mahan Company beyond that. And the violence would only grow worse. With no penalties for their actions, the strikebreakers were emboldened. On September 1st, 1913, a group of women and children went to the mines early to protest. Among them was Margaret Fozikash, a 14-year-old girl who went with her mother to show support for the other families in the area. Marching through the town of Kearsarge at 7 a.m., 
they ran into a group of so-called deputies. The armed men told the women and children to go home. Taunts and insults were exchanged. When the women wouldn't back down, a deputy named John Lavers leveled his gun at the crowd. As the protesters backed off in fear, Margaret Fazekash broke away from the group, running for her life. Lavers aimed at her and fired. The girl stumbled several more steps, then collapsed onto the ground. The bullet had struck her in the head, passing through her brain. The other deputies pointed their weapons into the air and fired, scattering the crowd. Margaret, somehow still alive, was rushed to a doctor. Once again, it was the families of the workers taking the brunt of the violence. Sheriff Cruz, naturally, arrested a striker for the shooting. Prosecutor Lucas promptly dismissed the case. Miraculously, Margaret Fazekash pulled through. But it was a small comfort. The murder case was still ongoing, and despite Lucas's best efforts, a grand jury determined not to indict the man who shot Fazekash. And confrontations with the strikers were only growing more contentious. On September 13th, a group of strikers led by Big Annie Clements came face to face with the National Guard in the town of Red Jacket. Big Annie carried the American flag proudly before the workers. One of the guardsmen knocked the flag from Big Annie's hands and it was trampled by his horse. Annie scooped the flag from the dirt and held it up once again. When one of the men pointed his bayonet at her, she yelled, Kill me. Run your bayonets and sabers through this flag, but I won't move back. If this flag won't protect me, then I will die with it. This incident proved problematic for the National Guard, who were in the uncomfortable position of defending a man who disrespected the American flag. A military investigation the next day concluded that it was well within the workers' rights to demonstrate, and the soldiers had no business threatening them. As the winter of 1913 loomed on the horizon, there was no end in sight to the strike. Exhausted and dwindling in resolve, a handful of Union women thought it might be a good time to relieve the crushing stress of the strike. They worked together to create a Christmas celebration that would take their minds off of the bitter conflict. But this celebration would play host to the most horrific catastrophe of the entire strike. Coming up, Christmas season in Copper Country leads to an unexpected tragedy. Now, back to the story. When the Western Federation of Miners decided to strike in July 1913, it kicked off a series of events that led from threats to violence and murder. Deputized strikebreakers killed two innocent men during one conflict in August, and another confrontation in September left 14-year-old Margaret Fazekash with a bullet wound in the head. Sometime in late 1913, a meeting of socialist and union women was called in the WFM Hall. During the meeting, Big Annie Clements suggested that they hold a Christmas celebration for the strikers' children. Annie managed to raise $58 for the event, which she used to buy mittens, stockings, toys, and candy. As the holiday approached, tensions between the mining companies and union members remained as strong as ever. 
but Christmas was a chance to take a breather and simply enjoy a day with their families. Many of the men and women were understandably exhausted from the strike, and this celebration was a chance to bring them all together and remind them what they were all fighting so hard for, a better life for their families. On Christmas Eve, Calumet News ran an optimistic article about the upcoming holiday, writing, In spite of the strike and a condition of special poverty requiring heroic measures of relief, I do not believe there will be a single cheerless fireside in Calumet tomorrow. The Christmas festivities were held in a building called the Italian Hall. The first floor of this building was occupied by the Atlantic and Pacific grocery store and a saloon. The second floor was an open hall with a stage, a kitchen, and a bar. This is where the party would be held. Children began arriving at 2 o'clock. There was one primary entrance to that floor of the building, a staircase behind an arched doorway by the saloon entrance. In the vestibule, a group of men made sure that only union members and their families could enter the hall. This, however, was only loosely enforced. Inside, rows upon rows of chairs were arranged in the hall facing the stage where a ballerina was dancing. Christmas carols were played on a piano, sung in English and Finnish by the strikers. All announcements were repeated in both languages. Originally, Annie Clements and the others had planned to put on a Christmas play, but with around 600 children in the fully packed hall, they made the decision to move right on to handing out presents. Children swarmed the stage, with some of the more eager ones climbing up the front. One by one, each child crossed the stage and was handed a present and candy before being directed off. For many of the children, these would be the only presents they received this Christmas, which made them all the more precious. At around 4.45 p.m., a man climbed the stairs to the Italian hall. Unlike most of the people who passed through the doors, he was not a member of the union or even a relative of one. In fact, he was there with less festive intentions. He burst into the main hall and yelled a single word repeatedly. Fire. Panic spread. The call of fire was echoed by others, first in English, then spreading to a half dozen other languages. A few attempted to stem the tide of panic, but it was futile. Within seconds, screaming children and their families were stampeding toward the doorway. In the confusion, no one bothered to take the fire escape on the left-hand side of the building. Everyone went for the stairwell. The first few made it out safely. The rest were not so lucky. Someone tripped in the stairwell, and a horrifying domino effect occurred. Men, women, and children slipped and fell into the crush of bodies. Some sources say the pileup was six feet deep. Outside, families tried to rescue their children from the entrance, only to be pushed back by deputies attempting to contain the chaos. In the commotion, someone rang the fire alarm. The fire department's logbook entry for Christmas Eve read, Fire alarm, December 24, 1913. Box 45 for Italian Hall. 
Disaster. No fire. Christmas festival for children of the WF of minors. Fire call and a stampede following down stairway. 73 lives were crushed out. The doorway had become the grave for 73 people, 14 adults and 59 children, all of whom had been expecting a pleasant reprieve from the horrors of the strike. Accounts of what happened that fateful Christmas Eve circulated in the following days. A number of those present provided their own descriptions of the man who yelled fire. He was described as a man of average height with a mustache and a hat pulled low over his eyes. Eyewitnesses could agree on a specific detail about this mysterious man. On his dark coat, he wore a pin labeled Citizens Alliance. The Citizens Alliance was an organization of concerned citizens founded during the strike, ostensibly with the goal of ending the standoff. Though it was never described as such, it was an anti-union group. To join the organization, one had to sign a pledge stating, I believe that the presence of the Western Federation of Miners is a menace to the future welfare and prosperity of the district, and that therefore in the interest of law, order, and peace, the Western Federation of Miners must go. This fueled the popular theory that the man crying fire was not a random act, but a targeted attempt to break up the gathering. To add fuel to this theory, the so-called czar of Copper Country, James McNaughton, has a large gap in his correspondence between December 18th and 24th. A similar gap appeared during the trials of the Seberville murderers. In recent years, historians have identified a suspect for the man who called fire and directly caused the deaths of over six dozen innocents, Edward Manley. He was one of the many people the fire department pulled from the deadly doorway. Manley was found closer to the top of the pile, so he escaped without any real injury. Firemen noticed right away that he wasn't a union man or an immigrant like most of the others. Manley was a Waddell Mahan strikebreaker. English language outlets such as the Calumet News circulated a story that Manley had heard the turmoil from the street and taken a ladder through the back window of the building to help. When he discovered there was no fire, he went to leave and got caught in the stairwell with everyone else. Author and attorney Steve Leto pointed out a number of holes in this story. For instance, how had Manley used the ladder at the back of the building when it was being used by people climbing down to safety? Also, he would have seen the fire escape while going around the building and presumably taken that exit instead of joining the pileup on the stairs. Other sources are less certain about Manley's guilt. Whatever the truth, no one was ever officially charged for causing the incident. The strike formally ended the next spring, on April 13, 1914. Their only victory was securing an eight-hour workday. After the death toll of the strike, it was a hollow achievement. Though nominally the victor, Calumet and Hecla would suffer diminishing returns through the 20th century, and in 1969, another strike forced the company to close its doors permanently. 
If you believe the slogans printed on Hallmark cards and in Charles Dickens' famous novella, Christmas is about family and community. Gathering together and celebrating against the cold winter is one of the elements that made Christmas transcend its identity as a religious feast and become a secular holiday. But for people working below or near the poverty line, Christmas is not a welcome vacation. It's a period of extreme financial vulnerability. The need to take additional work during the holidays can split up families during a season when they should be growing closer together. Whether someone is working retail through the holidays or a day laborer putting together Macy's Santa Claus exhibit, companies always need menial workers to make sure the holidays are as bright and cheery as can be. But when laborers threaten to fight for their rights, the wholesome family holiday can turn ugly. While today's strikes aren't necessarily as violent as the 1913 strike, they still offer a painful choice for workers. Either take what you can get, or fight an uphill battle against those who have more resources than you, who have the freedom to take a Christmas break. And this is why, in most depictions of Santa's workshop, the elves are shown as happy and compliant workers with no outside lives beyond their duty to their employer. If the elves unionized, Christmas as we know it would not be possible. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. For more information on the Copper Country strike of 1913, among the many sources we used, we found Death's Door, The Truth Behind the Italian Hall Disaster and the Strike of 1913 by Steve Lato, particularly helpful to our research. Next week, we'll continue the dark side of holidays with the true story of Hanukkah. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Liebeskind. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Drew Cole and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.